You're listening to Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. Here's your host, Ed Yonka, Director of Communications and Public Policy. Thanks, Max, and welcome to Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. It has been an incredible few weeks for issues around the Supreme Court of the United States, and we look forward to talking about those today. A number of controversial decisions in the last few weeks of the court's term. The retirement of Justice Anthony Kennedy after nearly 30 years on the court. The nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to take Justice Kennedy's seat on the court and perhaps affect its future moving forward. The ACLU is incredibly involved in the work of the court. This past term, we argued five cases directly and offered our views through various filings in a dozen others. In fact, the ACLU appears before the Supreme Court of the United States more often than any other entity except for the United States government. So we want to talk about these issues today, and to do so, we're going to be joined a little bit later by one of the preeminent legal scholars in the United States, Jeff Stone from the University of Chicago. But first, we want to talk about the decision in the Muslim ban case. And to do that, we're joined by Sufian Sohel. Sufian is the deputy director in the Chicago office of the Council of American Islamic Relations, or CARE. CARE is the leading national organization committed to protecting the civil rights and civil liberties of Muslims all across the United States. And Sufian, we're so pleased that you've joined us. Thank you for having me, Ed. So I think many of us will remember uh, the images or being at the airport as part of protests, especially um, at O'Hare, the night that the first Muslim ban went into effect. What was it like on the ground as an attorney? It was both very inspiring and very heartbreaking. It was so wonderful to see all the people who showed up We had protesters and activists and lawyers of all faiths and backgrounds, all professional disciplines, who just saw injustice happening. And they they felt this calling uh, to the airports. uh, And even just at O'Hare, we had over a thousand different attorneys who flocked to uh, Terminal 5 that first weekend. You made a lot of new friends, I'm guessing. So many new friends. And... uh, you know, and it was it was interesting because there was no organizational structure. It was just people who really wanted to uh, combat this in any way they can. Some were in the McDonald's line picking up cheeseburgers and coffee for other volunteers. Some were writing amicus briefs. Some were negotiating with customs. Many were just trying to console family members. And, uh, you know, everyone just found their little niche that weekend. Some were holding signs, you know, if you need help, come talk to us. There's attorneys here and... Everyone just wanted to help out in whatever way they could, and it was inspiring. But at the same time, it was so heartbreaking because, you know, this when the ban went into effect, there was people in the air. And right. once they landed, um, they had no idea what was going on. And some of these were citizens who were being questioned on how American they were and if they truly belonged in this country. And people who fought and whose families fought for them to come here and who— came here for the same reasons that all of our families originally came here, for opportunity and freedom and education and work and safety. And uh, it was just so heartbreaking to see the fear that they had and that they were being questioned on, you know, why they chose America to be home. 
So one of the items that you mentioned that people were doing were interacting with the agents, the Customs and Border Patrol agents. What were those interactions like both for you as a lawyer and for your clients? I think what we saw and still see is, you know, there's a lot of confusion um, on their part. Uh, They don't know, um, you know, what they should be looking for. A lot of them were hostile and rude. A lot of them were just confused as to what this new executive order meant for their jobs. Uh, They didn't really know how to apply it. Um, You know, unfortunately, you know, when we call now and when we went up there uh, to talk to them, to talk about individual clients, you know, they, because of security reasons, they would be unable to provide us answers or unwilling to provide us answers. And uh, it was really hard because it seemed very confrontational. Um, rather than them working to try to give us the answers that we were seeking. So one of the things that Care Chicago did that I think was incredibly creative and helpful um, was to create a program that helped people who were traveling, who helped people uh, in in that. And the program is called TAP, or T-A-P, the Traveler Assistance Program. I wonder if you could just describe the program, how it works, does it continue to work, and 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 where you see that program now? Absolutely. Um, so soon after the first executive order, we because there was no organizational structure, because there was no you know just people just running to the airport to offer their services, we felt this is a community that we directly serve at Care Chicago, and uh, we need to uh, be a little bit more involved in helping administer and making sure that. Uh, there will be a continued presence at O'Hare Airport. So we created the Traveler's Assistance Project, or TAP, and we created an online portal which attorneys could sign up to volunteer, interpreters could sign up to volunteer, and that uh, travelers could register their flight information uh, on the website so that the attorneys who were on the ground could keep an eye out for these concerned travelers and uh, then coordinate the entry into the um, to the country. But... You know, just like any other movement, we saw interest wane over the past year and a half, and we're fortunate that we still have about 300 attorneys who want to stay engaged in some capacity. 300? About 300. That's amazing. It's still still so great. And, uh, you know, we're trying to find new ways to keep them engaged, but one way we did is when the the need for a consistent presence at the airport kind of waned, we would then use the online portal to see where are there heavy instances of people registering, which flights are people uh, more concerned about, which countries are being more targeted. And we would make sure that we had attorneys there. And we had them through uh, Mother's Day of last year, after which we switched over to a 24-hour hotline, uh, which we still operate. And we get about uh, a dozen to 20 phone calls a week of people who are uh, afraid to travel and uh, or who are facing issues once they arrive. That's amazing. So uh, obviously, in uh, in in this last month in June, the Supreme Court issued their uh, ruling in the travel ban case, the third travel ban. Um, I, I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about what that ruling has meant um, for Muslims across the Chicago area. And, and what effect it's having on people and the way that they're traveling and thinking about traveling. It was really unfortunate. Uh, you know, I think in the broader sense, it just reaffirmed this government's decisions and actions to continuously 
discriminate against marginalized communities. And uh, I think not only the countries listed by the executive orders, but people from many, many different types of countries just feel like they're not welcome here anymore. Um, What's shocking to a lot of people is that the travel ban was still in effect. Mm -hmm. And the Supreme Court just reminded everybody that it was and that, you know, Muslims from specific countries would not be welcome into the United States anymore. You know, one of the elements of the decision that people have commented on is that the court sort of ignored uh, the president's repeated and continuous discriminatory comments about Muslims. I wonder what how you view that specifically for the Muslim community and what they think when the highest court in the land sort of lets the president have a pass with that kind of language. I mean, it says that they, I mean, it shows that they put a rubber stamp on his words and uh, his actions. And, uh, you know, it's you, we look to our courts to get justice. We look to the courts to protect our constitutional rights to be who we are. Uh, and the Constitution protects our right to freely practice our faith and that they won't um, put any limitations on that. And uh, unfortunately, what we're seeing now is just this huge fear, this reignition of this flame of fear of the community who's afraid to travel, who doesn't know if they leave, if they'll be allowed back. And it's not only ad, it's not only those countries that were listed in the travel ban that are affected you know, I'm getting calls from people from Mexico and Nigeria and Jordan and India, all who are facing issues once they arrive at the airport. Uh, we were talking a little bit before we went on the air. What what kind of issues are those uh, those folks still facing? I had a couple months ago a young student, Christian student from Jordan. Uh, he's a student at, in California, and he got detained at O'Hare, which was his point of entry, because he had a picture of him protesting um, he had a picture of him protesting the change of the Israeli the U.S. embassy in Israel to Jerusalem, and he was protesting in California. And uh, we had to get uh, UL, the ACLU of Illinois got involved in that case. The, uh, both Senator Durbin and Senator Duckworth got involved in that case. They revoked his student visa because he was doing a constitutionally protected action. Fortunately, we were allowed to. We were able to get him in, and uh, he's back in school, which is great. But even just yesterday, we had a a young lady who was detained overnight. She was traveling to visit some family uh, for a couple weeks here in Chicago. And uh, she was kept overnight. And we were told that she had to sit on a bench all night until they released her the next morning. That is really heartbreaking to hear. So what advice are you giving people right now in terms of uh, what to do before they travel, what to know, and how to interact with, with Customs and Border Patrol if they get caught up in in questioning or in the ban? We start with their visa application and let them know that make sure you are traveling for the stated intended purposes of your visa. Uh, Often we are seeing that people are stating one thing and their true intentions another thing, and they're caught up in that, unfortunately. Um, Second is that they prove that if they're coming for non-immigrant purposes, that they can show that they have an intent to go back, mm-hmm. that they have business or family interests back in their home countries, and that they um, have a return ticket. Uh, we see a lot of people who are not allowed into the country because they buy one-way tickets, and uh, that raises some red flags um, uh, by the customs officers. And then we tell them that you know they have a right to travel, 
they have a um, you know a right to be treated humanely. Uh, we ask them to, if they face any issues, to report to us what their experiences are, so that we can push back and uh, demand better service. Per to, uh, to say, and uh, we tell them to be smart when they travel, to to treat customs agents with respect, to not uh, be rude, and uh, you know to make sure that if they're afraid that their phone, that they're going to be asked to show their phones, that there's nothing personal that they want to be seen on there and uh you know just to be vigilant as they travel but also a reminder that a visa is not a guarantee entry into the united states right. and that uh, a custom agent for any reason now feels empowered that they can turn away someone for almost any reason how are families of detained travelers affected at the airport what what is the point at which you hear from them and what does what is the anxiety like for them the people who are calling us on the hotline are calling us after five or six or seven hours after uh, the person whom they're waiting for um, was supposed to arrive. And, you know, these people are probably even more scared than the traveler because they don't know where their family member or their friend is. A lot of these uh, travelers do not have cell phones. They don't have an access to the phone when they're being detained by customs. Or they're already put on a plane back to their uh, country of origin. So. What we try to do at the very least is get the information uh, to them about where their family is. Even if we can't allow them in, we try to at least uh, give that ease of mind to the family members. So that's why we encourage anyone that if someone who's supposed to arrive has not come out within two hours, please call us because that's the best time for us to get involved. Otherwise, uh, it may be just in a limbo that we don't know where they are until Customs is willing to share that information. What can people do to help? Um beyond the notions of donating and things of that nature. What can people do to help if there are things that around this issue that they'd still like to do? Right now, it's just uh, to educate themselves that it, it, you know, these issues are still facing us. Mm-hmm. And then what I tell everyone is there's so many communities facing discrimination, hate, and marginalization in many different ways. And it's all of our collective responsibilities to stand up for them. And because if it's not my community... It's going to be another community, and it may be my community tomorrow and throughout American history. We've seen almost every immigrant group face, and Native groups face, you know, marginalization, hate, violence. And only together can we stop it. Uh, Second, I say is speak out. Reach out to elected officials and say that you're not going to tolerate it. You know, we have an election coming up. We need people to vote. We need to get the elected officials who truly represent our voice and our beliefs. And we really need to fight to reclaim this country and the ideals that we believe it to have. Um, if people wanted to learn more about the work of CARE Chicago, where should they, where can they go? What can, where can they get some more information? Sure. Uh, please visit our website at www.carechicago.org. Please visit our office. We're just uh, State in Madison, 17 North State Street. And if they want to learn more about uh, the Traveler's Assistance Project, they can visit our website at uh, tapus, T-A-P-U-S, dot org. And the hotline for TAP TAP is? 872-333-2737. And we encourage anyone, absolutely anyone, who's afraid to travel, citizen, green card holder, immigrant, tourist, to register on their website. We will have attorneys who are monitoring and follow up with them uh, during their travel, even you know if they 
have traveled 100 times to the United States before, we encourage them to travel. And if they do face any issues, to call us relatively early um, so we can try to get in front of the problem and help them into the country. Sufian, thank you so much for joining us on Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Let's turn now to a broader discussion of the Supreme Court term that just ended. We're joined by Jeff Stone, the Edward H. Levy Distinguished Service Professor at the University of Chicago School of Law. Professor Stone served previously as a law clerk to Supreme Court Justice William J. Brennan, Jr., and he also served as a dean of the law school at the University of Chicago and as the provost of that university. He is known as a prolific author and lecturer, and he is considered one of the preeminent constitutional scholars in America. We are so pleased to be joined today by Professor Jeff Stone. Thank you. Delighted to be here. So in terms of the the term that just ended, uh, a number of cases that affected uh, and affect civil liberties were were decided. I wanted to talk about a couple of those, and let's start with the the case of National Institute of Family and Life Advocates versus Becerra. Um, this is a case from California, and I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what that case is about and kind of what it means. So basically, uh, in California, as across the nation, um, there are reproductive health centers. And some of these reproductive health centers, I think there were some 200 of them in California, um, are basically pro-life centers um, whose purpose it is to bring women in um, who are concerned about um, their reproductive health and about pregnancies and, and so on, and to move them in a direction away from abortion. Mm-hmm. And the state of California passed a law that required all reproductive health centers in the state, regardless of what their um, uh, focus was, uh, to to basically provide information uh, in the form of a sign uh, to all of their uh, clients or patients uh, to the effect that the state of California provides um, financially uh, subsidized reproductive health care um, to its citizens, um, including uh, particularly for individuals who are poor, uh, and including health uh, advice about a range of different uh, matters concerning reproductive freedom. Um, the uh, these pro-choice centers uh, sued, claiming that to require them to post this sign violated their rights under the First Amendment because it compelled them to provide information that they wished not to provide. So it was a, sort of a forced speech exactly. in that way so by their the argument, government. Their argument was that this was compelled speech and that that was unconstitutional to compel them to, to um, convey this speech. And quite honestly, this was an argument which under prior law seemed not to have very much credibility. Um, The Supreme Court has recognized circumstances where compelled speech is unconstitutional. Um, For example, compelling people to say the the Pledge of Allegiance in school. Um, But this was a situation where you were dealing with professional organizations, uh, giving professional advice to individuals about important matters of health. Um, And the state had an obviously very legitimate and indeed important interest in ensuring that uh, individuals knew about the availability of the health care that the state itself provided. Um, Nonetheless, the court in a 5-4 decision um, with Justice Thomas writing the majority opinion um, held that this was unconstitutional uh, because it violated the First Amendment rights of the pro-life centers um, and the four more liberal justices on the court dissented and argued that given precedent, uh, that this was a pretty open and shut case 
and that this was not the kind of compelled speech that the First Amendment was primarily designed um, to be concerned with. And what was particularly troubling about the case is the fact that there's no doubt in my mind uh, that if this had been a situation where a state compelled uh, doctors who were performing abortions to inform their patients of all of what the state insisted with the dangers of abortion, that the same five justices in the majority would have held this was constitutional. And indeed, the court had done exactly that in the Casey case. Right, a, a kind of a, a mandated speech about abortion to clients that, that abortion clinics had to get. Exactly. So in my view, this was an example of a fundamental inconsistency on the part of the uh, the justices in this case, the conservative justices in this case, and it's a form of activism. It's important to note that when the justices talk about uh, judicial restraint, this does not in any way capture the reality of the conservative justices. And when they talk about originalism, that has nothing to do with the behavior of these justices. Nothing in any theory of originalism would lead to the invalidation of this type of a law. But nonetheless, the five justices who are uh, at the very least skeptical about abortion um, and four of them, who I believe would be inclined to overrule Roe v. Wade, um, voted to uphold this, this, to strike down this restriction. So another case I wanted to talk about is the case actually from Illinois, which I think probably a lot of people have heard about, Janice versus AFSCME. Um, and I wonder sort of what your your thoughts are about that case and, 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 again, sort of the approach that the court took to this case. Well, it's a similar kind of issue. Again, it's an issue of acclaimed, compelled speech. Um, in Janice, the issue was whether... Um, the state could require uh, its employees uh, to pay dues to uh, public service uh, labor unions um, to support their collective bargaining and related activities. And the Supreme Court, 40 years earlier, um, had held this was constitutional um, and that that had been the law for four decades. And now uh, the same five justices who were in the majority in Becerra, again, strike this law down, claiming that it violates the First Amendment rights of um, employees who do not wish to affiliate with the union, even though they get the benefits of the collective bargaining agreements that the union is, is negotiating. And uh, again, this was an example of five conservative justices uh, claiming the mantle of protecting free speech, um, but in a way that was clearly designed to protect conservative political views uh, because public service employee unions tend to be seen as uh, favoring the labor movement and therefore the democratic side of things. So this was another example of what I would regard as a kind of hypocritical uh, enforcement of the, of the Constitution, not consistent with precedent, not consistent with originalism, not consistent with judicial restraint. Um, and interestingly, both of these cases are cases that I think the ACLU as an organization might actually have some difficulty with because the claims that were accepted were claims of free speech. speech. Um, but these were claims that were being accepted by a set of very conservative justices um, who, if things had been reversed, I rather doubt would accept this kind of an argument. Right. Right. So the big news, obviously, out of this term came at the end when when Justice Kennedy announced his retirement. Um, and I and I wonder just what you think of a, you know, Judge, Justice Kennedy's tenure on the bench uh, and and where you see the court moving forward with a, if if in, if he's confirmed to Justice Kavanaugh. Well, Kennedy's uh, performance on the bench has been in some ways romanticized mm -hmm. because he was a uh, a very good voice on the issue of abortion and a strong voice on the issue of gay rights. And he got and deserved a lot of credit for his positions in those cases. On the other hand, in, in roughly three quarters of the cases that 
we decided, well, Kennedy was on the court that involved highly ideological questions, uh, Kennedy voted with the conservatives, whether it was Citizens United or it was, whether it was gun control or affirmative action of the Voting Rights Act. Um, across across a broad range of of questions, he voted as a pretty pretty strict conservative, but because of his votes, particularly on abortion and gay rights, um, he was seen as a very uh, important member of the court uh, that prevented uh, the other four justices who varied over time um, from moving much further against those kinds of interests. So, with Kennedy's departure, of course, we now have the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh by President Trump, um, and I think Kavanaugh is. Uh, fairly regarded as a very smart, very able judge who under other circumstances would not be strongly objectionable. Mm -hmm. Um, Had Justice Scalia died now and had Donald Trump um, nominated Kavanaugh to replace Scalia, uh, my guess is that he would have been confirmed that a number of Democrats would have been unhappy, but they would ultimately, most of them would ultimately have supported it. And like um, Elena Kagan and, and and like Sonia Sotomayor and like John Roberts and like um, Samuel Alito, he would have been confirmed. But what makes this different is the fact that what the Republicans did and what Senator Mitch McConnell did uh, to Barack Obama's nomination of Merrick Garland was utterly unconscionable. Um, a truly horrible moment in the history of Supreme Court um, confirmations or non-confirmations by the Senate. Uh, Without any legitimate or principled justification, uh, McConnell refused to allow Garland to have a hearing, and indeed, Republicans refused to confirm someone who is eminently qualified, uh, quite moderate, in fact, and a very reasonable compromise nomination by Obama. And the reason for that was simple. They wanted to preserve the opportunity uh, to control the court in the way they had. Had Garland been confirmed, then there would have been five liberal-leaning justices on the Supreme Court for the first time in half a century. And the Republicans in the Senate were not going to permit that to happen. And with the election of Donald Trump and then the confirmation of Neil Gorsuch, that put the court back where it was before, with Gorsuch effectively replacing Scalia. But now, with Kavanaugh replacing Kennedy, uh, the court will move sharply to the right, um, particularly on the issues of gay rights and abortion, and marginally so, I think, on a range of other issues as well. I wonder what you think some of those other issues are, because I think it, certainly in the first week or so, I, a lot of the focus has been both on gay rights because of Justice Kennedy's writing in particular, I think with eloquence about the liberty and the notion of individuals you know, being who they are and loving who they love. Um, but on a, on Roe in particular. But, but what are some of the other issues you think will be in play? Well, Ken- Kennedy played a cautious role on affirmative action. Mm-hmm. And I think one can expect that the court will move in a more negative direction on affirmative action than Kennedy permitted it to go to. Um, I think that uh, on uh, even issues like, like guns and campaign finance, there's a reasonable possibility that Kavanaugh will be more aggressive uh, in, in, in eliminating regulations of those things uh, than Kennedy was. And one of the interesting questions is, it's hard to understand what a court will do uh, over time if one has a five-member solid ideological majority. Right. Um, one of the games I used to play with colleagues was suppose Hubert Humphrey had defeated Richard Nixon in 1968, and and he had had four nominations to the Supreme Court. Right. And suppose that that 
basic trend had continued, and the Warren Court had existed all the way up to today. Right. What would constitutional look like today? Well, it was almost impossible, frankly, to imagine that world. I mean, probably affirmative action might be constitutionally required, um, and um, uh, welfare might be constitutionally required, and there might be uh, equality required in uh, public funding of education. Um, and, and one can't even imagine how different the world might be today. Uh, and the same is true, I fear, in the realm of the conservative direction. Um, justices like Souter and, and Kennedy and O'Connor um, and Stevens uh, placed a check on how far the h- hardcore arch-conservative justices were able to go and how far they could even imagine themselves going. So, for example, one could imagine not only overruling Roe v. Wade, one could imagine this court holding that the fetus is a person right. under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment and therefore holding that states cannot constitutionally permit abortion. Now, that seems almost unimaginable at the moment, but I can imagine over time this group of five justices, if Kavanaugh is confirmed, going in that direction. And and one other area I wanted to ask you about, because um, we talked about those two free speech cases earlier. I wonder where you think we're headed in terms of free speech. I think especially in this age where we see so much protest, where we see so much First Amendment activity, uh, and, and given these two recent decisions, where do you see that going over the next several years with the court? One of the interesting things about the conservative justices on the court is that in the last uh, 10 or 15 years, they've actually been pretty strongly pro-free speech. Justice Scalia was often noted for that. Right. And so a case like Citizens United um, is arguably a free speech case. And uh, on a range of other areas, particularly in commercial advertising and in corporate speech, uh, the conservative justices have been very very strong in their understanding of an interpretation of free speech. And even in some cases where one wouldn't have expected it. So, for example, in in, in the context of um, violent video games, Mm -hmm. right, you had the conservative justices saying the First Amendment prohibits the state from from regulating this. So they have taken a pretty strong view on free speech. Um, in terms of the, the protest issue, um, I think they will be pretty protective, in fact. I, I do think that we've seen a kind of surprising—I don't know whether it's a, a principled commitment or it's the fact that, for the most part, what they protected is conservative speech. Right. Um, but I think that having gone that far, uh, in, in most instances, unless they care deeply about the issue, they're likely to keep heading that way, as they did, for example, with the violent video games. Uh, Well, Professor Stone, it's hard to believe we've gotten through this segment already, but thank you very much for your time. And I can only say that I hope that you'll come back next year and we'll talk about what the first year of the court without Justice Kennedy looks like. It'd be my pleasure. Thanks so much, Ed. Thank you. So we've heard today of the impact of one case, the Muslim ban case, uh, on people across the Chicago area and across the country. And we've also heard a dark forecast about the way that the work of the Supreme Court could possibly impact all Americans over the next several years. And for many of us, we recognize that it's hard to become directly involved in the work of the Supreme Court of the United States. But there are things that we can do. We can demand that our public officials change policies, even in response to court rulings. We can demand that policies be changed. And of course, we can vote. We can vote like our rights depend on it this November to elect a Congress that will put forward positions that fulfill our highest and noblest ideas for civil liberties and human rights in this country. 
That's our episode. Thank you for listening to Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. I'd like to thank our guests, Sufian Sohel of CARE Chicago and Professor Jeff Stone of the University of Chicago School of Law. Talking Liberties was produced by Max Bever, executive producer Chris Olson, and it was mixed by Philip Von Duren. A special thanks to our executive director, Colleen Connell. Subscribe to this podcast and rate us. Visit our website at aclu-il.org. And you can contact us directly at talkingliberties at aclu-il.org. Until next time, this is Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. We'll see you soon.